Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you can't fake the authenticity of someone telling their cancer story it's really to me it's really sacred when somebody chooses to tell their story you can't buy that From Offscript Media, I am Matthew Zachary, and this is Out of Patience. On the show today, it's all about advocacy. Pam Traxel, Vice President for Alliance Development and Philanthropy at the American Cancer Society's Cancer Action Network, joins me. The acronym of the show is ACSCAN. Hunkered down deep in Washington, D.C.'s Beltway, ACSCAN is the dedicated policy arm of the American Cancer Society. And as appendages go, it's a good choice. We all need strong arms. Their mission is to ensure that elected leaders make ending suffering and death from cancer a top priority. Not a bad idea, as opposed to, I guess, ending suffering from, oh, endless pumpkin spice latte commercials. But I digress, because the key to getting anything done in Washington, at least as far as getting policies enacted to make cancer suck less, is in fact advocacy. More so, the stories of advocates who, with one well-spooned yarn, can convince a lawmaker to sign a bill that could schoolhouse rock itself into becoming a law that could help millions of people. Advocacy and lobbying, when done the right way, always begin with a story. One person's story. And the sacred art of telling your story can quite literally change the cancer world forever. So while policy might be the end game for change, Never forget that whether you number in the hundreds for a hill day or lobby a staffer as an army of one, advocacy works. Advocacy matters. Advocacy forever. Enjoy my chat with Pam Traxon. Pam, I'm going to start with a Mel Brooks metaphor from Spaceballs. Evil always wins because good is dumb. Where does that fit into advocacy? Well, I think, honestly, if you think about it, if good always won out, you wouldn't need patient advocates. Really, patient advocates' jobs are to protect patients from as much evil as possible. That is the right answer. What do we got for her, Wink? Ding, 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 ding. I love having you on the show. I love talking to you. You're my favorite go-to policy for person for years and years and years. And you kind of never don't have the answers, which is amazing. But you've been doing this forever. You work for the DNC. You're a Beltway person. How do you balance out the insanity with the pragmatism of keeping your job functioning no matter where you work? 
it's really about remembering who I work for, which is cancer patients and the fact that they need me every day and that in fact, they don't even know me, but they still need me. And I, and so I think that kind of using that as your North Star, I think a lot of times people forget that when you want to kind of get away from your job a little bit, cancer is always still there, you know? So if, if I shut down my computer or, you know, I'm just watching something t on TV or, you know, I talk to a friend, cancer is a lot of places. And so it's never very far from kind of my headspace. So to me, being a cancer advocate is one of the ways that I deal with all the kind of the chaos that comes from having cancer you know, touch my life so many different times, so many different ways. You know, so to give my listeners a sense of who you are and how I know you, we go back at least, I don't know, 10, 15 years into the ether of early cancer advocacy. And I don't think there's a better use of schoolhouse rock as a metaphor than and of any show I've ever done whenever I talk to you. But you live and breathe in the space before Schoolhouse Rock exists, because this is about how to get a bill, even before it has the potential to become a law. And that bill is created by people who are demanding something to happen that is unfair and unjust, correct? Correct. And I would say, you know, the, the cool part about laws is that you are protecting patients from something that they may never have to experience, right? So... Think about for a minute, um, now that you've dated our relationship a little bit, what it would be like to be a cancer patient today, okay? So a cancer patient gets diagnosed today. Because of the Affordable Care Act, they don't have to think about pre-existing conditions limiting their ability to change jobs or get health insurance. But if you were kind of to jump in a time machine and go back 10 years ago, that was a huge issue for cancer patients. And so what's cool to me about laws is that it's not just solving a, a current problem for a person, it's actually solving a problem for someone before they even know that they have one. And that's the story of advocacy, which is you're making sure someone like you doesn't have to go through what you went through, but they never even know that because it's an invisible progress. It, totally. It's invisible. And you know, for me, it's really important to make sure that cancer patients can devote all their energy to battling their disease and not kind of some of the things that are procedurally in their way of, of doing that. I also think it's really important for people, you know, regardless of their resource, I tell people all the time, you know, cancer is a, a pretty deadly disease. If you think about losing somebody like Steve Jobs to cancer, I mean, obviously he had as many resources as there could be in this world, and yet he still died of cancer. Think about what it's like to potentially be a single mom who works an hourly job who has cancer. You know, how do we make sure that she has some of the protections that she needs to fight her cancer? I want to get back to that exact conversation, but I want to start off by having our listeners hear you talk about the distinction between the American Cancer Society and the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network? Well, that's a common question that I get. So it's really pretty simple. The American Cancer Society, I think a lot of people know it. We've been around for over 100 years, uh, really focused on cancer research and patient service. About 20 years ago, in fact, next year, ACS CAN, as we call it, because you know, you mentioned I'm an inside the beltway person. We always have to have an acronym. Acronyms right? every day. 
And here's the best part. It's ACS can, not ass can. <laughs> and I know you're saying, why would it be ass can? Trust me, I've heard it. I've heard it many times before. And I'm like, no, it's ACS, right? Like the American Cancer Society. So it's ACS can, not ass can. And yet magically, sometimes people introduce me as being from ass can. And it's, it's really hard to transition into a meaningful <laughs> conversation when somebody says the name wrong. So about 20 years ago, uh, 19 years ago, actually, the American Cancer Society decided that public policy was going to be just as important as cancer research in the fight against cancer. We knew that making sure that laws were created to benefit cancer patients and their family was going to be a really important part of the fight. So ACS CAN was created as its own organization focused on public policy work at the local, state, and federal level. And we have a whole team of staff that work all across the country, making sure that we can do everything we can to have elected officials um, kind of fulfill a very sacred promise to make sure that they do what they can to fight cancer. When laws are passed, I can't imagine this, but you're going to autocorrect me if I'm right or wrong either way. Is it intentional to disenfranchise people so that they have to fight to fix it? You know, I think that that's a good question. I think it, to me, this is really chicken in the egg, right? You think a little bit about other countries. Most other countries have laws, at least to a certain extent. So which kind of started first? You know, was it the law or was it the process for the law? I think to me, good laws actually make a real difference for people. Uh, bad laws, you know, create challenge. And like anything, there are some good laws and there are some bad laws. So I'm going to go back to the mission of ASCAN. See, I did it on purpose. Yeah, see, there you go. Now I've taught you something funny that you're never going to forget. And you're never going to forget it either. I'm sorry. You asked for this. It's all good, though. We're friends. Trust me, this is how it works in my life. It's literally like, you know, voice of God, right? You know, you walk out onto the stage. <laughs> Ladies and, and like, gentlemen. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, God. God, this is the worst. And in fact, sometimes when people interview me, they'll say ass can, I'll say back ACS can. And it's a really interesting psychological experiment because I'll try and say ACS can as many times as I can to get the person to change what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And magically, it doesn't work. Well, anyway, the official mission of ass can, I'm just going to keep saying it, is to ensure that elected officials make ending suffering from death and cancer a top priority. The question is, how would it not be a top priority? Dumb question, right? No, not a dumb question. Actually, I kind of fell for this when I first started working for ACS Can. I thought, oh, like this should be really easy, right? Like elected officials, who, who's pro-cancer? And the bottom line is... <laughs> pro-cancer, right? over like, here on the like, left side. Yeah, like it's not, you know, this isn't like a lot of the other debates that we have in our country. But what I think the challenge is, is getting elected officials to understand why a public policy makes a difference in the lives of cancer patients. So I know you have kids, so I'm going to walk through like the really simplest example. So smoking, leading cause of cancer death in our country, and lung cancer actually is the leading cause of cancer death. So we spend a lot of time working on lung cancer and tobacco control. So if I told you, Matthew, that one of the key strategies to getting your kids to not pick up their first cigarette would be to make that pack of cigarettes have a tax on it, 
So it was really expensive, right? So that they couldn't surf around in couch cushions and get, you know, a dollar and go buy a pack of cigarettes. They'd have to, like, in some states, have to go for more than $10 a pack, right? That's a lot of quarters and nickels and dimes for you to find around your parents' house. And what we know is that as the price of cigarettes increases, okay, less and less kids will pick up their first cigarette and start smoking. Okay. Wait, cost prohibitation is the number one preventer? It is for children and smoking, yes. Wow, I did not know that. That's incredible. And so when you think about that, people will say philosophically, I'm opposed to taxes, right? Like I don't believe in taxes. You see this, you know, among Republicans and Democrats, there are groups of people who think taxes are not the right way to govern, you know, our country. And I understand that. But what they need to understand is that we need to prevent kids from smoking right? The majority of lifelong smokers pick up their very first cigarette before they're 18 years old. It is critical that kids not start smoking, right? So we got to do what we can to increase the pack of cigarettes cost, right? To make sure that kids don't smoke. We also have to regulate the places that sell, you know, cigarettes, right? So that they're IDing your child, right? So that they know that your kid is 13, not 18 or 21, right? And then last but not least, you know, we need to pass smoke-free laws, right? So that people aren't being normalized by mommy, daddy, why are those people smoking in this restaurant? I thought you told me smoking was bad, but they're doing that at the table right next to us. So these are the kinds of things that, you know, I don't think every elected official really thinks about when it comes to public policy change. But those are really simple things, right? They're, they're easy. I can explain like that to any elementary school class in the country and often do, right, to talk about why public policy can make a difference in the lives of people who, you know, are, are trying not to get cancer. I would imagine outside of the tobacco lobby or whatever current state it is in uh, as of this recording here in the fall of 2020, to the extent that there are 535 voting members of Congress I would imagine most of them are keenly aware that these are good laws to get behind, back, and help pass, correct? Cigarette smoking and cessations, taxes. There's always been a huge challenge. So the federal tobacco tax was last increased kind of a long time ago, uh, about 10 years ago. And people will often say, well, you know, we don't, there are people who are, are hooked on cigarettes and, you know, this is, this is difficult for them. And I say, you know, look, tax revenue has got to come from somewhere. You know, preventing kids from stopping smoking is really important. It's also really important to take government dollars and fund cessation coverage, right? The average smoker uh, tries to quit seven times before they successfully quit, which I jokingly say is like, you know, anybody that's tried to lose weight. I'm like, oh, if only it was seven diets, right, like, that exactly. would be perfect, right? Like at seven diets per year. I'm right? raising my hand on the radio. Yeah, no. So, you know, I think it's about combining things together and making sure that we have successful policies. But you'll be surprised. Different people, you know, kind of approach this philosophically really, really differently. And it's our job to make sure that they understand the facts and they understand what the policy change means. I feel like channeling the Thank You for Smoking movie for no reason other than, is it probably likely true? I'm going to say yes from my cheap seats in the back on, on, on cigarette policy. But I will say, 
from my cursory, I have I have 10-year-old twins, and I see their families and friends in the neighborhood. No one smokes. No one. And compared to what I would, you know, growing up in the 80s, everyone smoked. Kids smoked. Eighth graders, sixth graders smoked. Today, no one's smoking. Maybe it's my neighborhood. Maybe I'm just living in a bubble here in New York. But to the extent that I'm on a day-to-day through the lens of being a dad, not seeing what I saw when I was, you know, 10, 15 years old, has there been tangible... I mean, can we point to the fact that these laws have saved lives? 100% they've saved lives. And I think, you know, you point to really interesting things. So while smoking is at an all-time low in our country, we are seeing a couple things. First of all, we see a certain group of Americans more likely to smoke. So people with lesser income, people with mental illness, the LGBTQ community tends to have sm- higher smoking rates. So we have a lot of work to do to bring, you know, that kind of policy benefit to those communities. But, you know, since you mentioned your 10-year-old kids, let me let me tell you something you need to be on the watch for. E-cigarettes e- and vaping. Yeah. Right? This is normalizing a behavior, right? Because just like you said when you were growing up, People are smoking. So even if your parents were telling you not to smoke, you said, well, you know, so-and-so's dad's doing it. Or, you know, I mean, you, you kind of, it was part of something that you saw. And so it was very normalized to people. That's kind of the concern around e-cigarettes, right? It's just normalizing that culture of, of smoking, right? Obviously, it's smoking something different than, um, than a traditional cigarette. And in fact, we see a lot of kids who start out with e-cigarettes transition to regular cigarettes. And so, you know, you have to be constantly vigilant about that. And I think, you know, this is what ACS Can is really all about, is trying to make sure that lawmakers and the American public really understand some of the dangers here, because really, We know, and as a cancer survivor, Matthew, you know, we have to do everything we can to prevent people from getting cancer, right? It's it's not a walk in the park. Back with our guest after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So behind every 
bill, behind every influence, behind every legislator who helps be coached to make a decision is an advocate, an influencer, maybe a, quote, good lobbyist, if the word lobbyist has the connotations, at least I think it has. And you guys are like the center of the universe for advocates, but to the extent that what are they, who are they, what do they do, how do they know what to say, who do you put them in touch with, what do you want to accomplish by that, that's like a crazy, like, secret 21 recipe, you know, cookbook thing that's been marinating for years. Talk to us and tell all of us, how is the sausage made? Well, I think, you know, look, it gets, I think, overly complicated sometimes and glamorized in all these movies. But really, advocacy and lobbying begins with a story, right? A story of a person and something that they experienced. And unfortunately, with cancer, we know that there are millions of Americans that have a cancer story. Either they're a cancer survivor themselves, a caregiver, they lost a loved one to cancer. Everybody's got a cancer story. Everyone has been touched by cancer. And so really what groups like ACS can try and do is take those everyday Americans and get them to tell their story to a lawmaker, to get them to understand why a particular policy is super, super important. This can be really, really simple. It can be someone telling their story about cancer research and the fact that they were in a clinical trial and asking a member of Congress to provide more funding to the National Cancer Institute to have more clinical trials around cancer, right? I think really when I think about it, it's about kind of bringing the concepts to life with actual people. And that's to me the funnest part of this job, because in the end, if I had to think what really motivates elected officials, it's when they find a friend, a constituent, a neighbor who has a problem, and they want to help them that person out by passing a law. You know, a lot of times when I talk to groups about kind of like Schoolhouse Rocks, Civics 101, you know, I kind of talk about a very classic story about, you know, you live in a neighborhood, you've got young kids, the cars are racing past your house and you think, you know what, I need a stop sign on that corner, right? Like I need to slow people down on my street. I'm going to put a stop. I need a stop sign. You think, well, I'm just going to call the government. They're going to send me a stop sign. And guess what? They don't. <laughs> they don't send you a stop sign. They don't send you a stop sign. So you're like, okay, I got to organize my neighbors. I'm going to, we're going to write a letter. I'm going to go door to door to all my neighbors. I'm going to ask them to sign on to this letter. You know, and then you think, well, I got to I got to take my signed letter into, you know, the head, the mayor or the head of the city council. This is really what lobbying is, right? It is making your case to ask for a change. It's not the secret, like I said, Hollywood style, you know, thing. It's really about how do you make change and how do you make that case? And to me, all good lobbying comes from people sharing their stories ACS can would be nothing without our volunteers and their stories. They are the heart and soul of our organization. They're the true heroes here who really, you know, do something that I think is really hard, which is share their personal story, right? And, and sometimes that's not easy to share in front of a complete stranger, maybe wearing, you know, a business suit, which maybe you might not be so comfortable in 
or in COVID times over Zoom, right? Which, you know, is, is a little weird. And and then asking that person, you know, to support a, a particular piece of legislation. That's that's really hard. Right. right. But I mean, the average person isn't an Aaron Brockovich with this baked in chutzpah that puts them in a place where they're just naturally good on stage in front of people. Right. So we identify or it is identified that there's something that we want to change in policy, X, Y, and Z, whatever it is. Do you go find the patient that can tell the story you need? Or do you have a repository of people you can go back and dip into the well for? And can, do you Aaron Brockage ify people to play the part you need them to play, despite it needing to be authentic, which it probably is anyway? Well, so that's kind of the advantage of being, you know, part of the American Cancer Society is every day we're asking people to join our organization and share their stories. And so we are story banking stories all across the country every day. We're working with other cancer organizations and saying to them, look, you know, if you're a lung cancer group, do you have somebody who has this experience, right? Do you have someone who's been on a clinical trial? Do you have, you know, so really trying to do this the right way, because to me, you can't fake the authenticity of someone telling their cancer story. And I know, Matthew, I've listened to you tell your story before, there's there's something very magical when somebody tells their story, right? Like it's it's really to me it's really sacred when somebody chooses to tell their story. You can't buy that, right? So, you know, the good news if there's good news in this is that there are a lot of cancer patients and even more cancer um survivors and caregivers who really are able to tell the stories that we need them to tell and not just you know, in a broad way, because when you're lobbying a particular elected official, you want to make sure that that person is a constituent of that person, right? So that in the end, they understand that that's somebody that's voting for them potentially, or voting against them. And that's kind of the the power of a representative democracy. Yeah. So so does that mean that you're going to put a patient in front of a lawmaker or a staffer, let's say pre-COVID, like in real life, do, does that patient or is it advantageous for that patient to be a constituent of that legislator? 100%. And in fact, ACS CAN has a lead volunteer in every congressional district in the country whose job it is to build a relationship with their member of Congress and can be the conduit. There's a yentadum to this. There is 100% a yentadum to it. And I think that that's really been the source of our power. So we started about 10 years ago, a very formalized volunteer network. We're always looking for new volunteers, but right now we are have a lead volunteer in every congressional district. And so Matthew, if you were our lead volunteer and we had to tell a story to your member of Congress that you didn't have that story that wasn't part of your cancer journey, you would be reaching out to other people in your congressional district through your network to try and find somebody who had had breast cancer, for example, or something like that. You know, that's the power of it. And I will tell you, for me, the thing that is really exciting is to take someone like someone who has survived cancer and empower them to use their story and use their voice. You know, I think cancer takes away a lot from people. Um, You don't have a lot of control over what happens to you. And it's a very difficult journey. And if you are lucky enough to survive your cancer, I think one of the things you think about is 
how can I make this experience mean something, right? How can I do something? Becoming an advocate, sharing your story is a big part of that. And I tell people, for a lot of the volunteers I work with, it's their therapy. I mean, to that extent, you're right. The power of storytelling, you know, storytelling and or telling your story, I think they're interchangeable. But, you know, it, it's it's one thing to just write a blog piece, which is great, but to take an active role in helping to be honed, and I wouldn't say overly theatricized, but, you know, there is a bit of an easy bake oven component to positioning somebody to know exactly how to say the right thing to somebody. I do want to go back because this still confounds me and you always answer it the right way, but I just want to ask it on the air here. There are 535 voting members of Congress. Everyone knows someone with cancer. And yet you still have to go one by one, person by person, and then legislator by legislator and say, we need more funding for this. We need, do they ever say no? Is it just, is there partisanship or like, it's got to be the Sisyphus part. Um, you know, some of it is partisanship and some of it is competing priorities. You might have a legislator say like, I think the National Cancer Institute is really great, but we have a really huge budget deficit, right? And I would say the progress that we are making in the fight against cancer is directly linked to the work of the National Cancer Institute and the National Institutes of Health. If we didn't map the human genome, where would we be in the fight against cancer? I can tell you right now, our cancer death rates would be skyrocketing, right? Completely. Because cancer is a genetic disease, right? So you need to know something about you know, your tumor type or your hereditary background. I mean, there, there are all these different things that we need to know. What company is going to just randomly pay to sequence the human genome? No one, right? Mm -hmm. Like it, it's, it's not, it's not a commercial interest. So you need that national infrastructure to do that work. You know, it's a virtuous cycle in the sense of, You've got scientists at the National Cancer Institute. You have small biotech companies. You have large pharmaceutical companies. You've got diagnostic companies. Bottom line, all of those people need to be working together to make a difference in the fight against cancer. And we are lucky in the more than 10 years I've been doing this work, we've seen a lot of progress. But for all the progress we've seen, every day, people die of cancer that should not die of cancer. And we have a lot of work to do. So I think making that case and re-emphasizing over and over again how much progress we need to make in this fight is critical. I don't know if you know this about me. Uh, so my final thought to wrap up, I want to tell you a little story. Speaking of stories, in 2004, I was invited to give a piano concert on the mall, the National Mall, for something called Relay for Life Celebration on the Hill. And they set up 50 tents on the mall of all 50 states. And the state ACS leaders came and 30,000 people came to D.C. on buses. And they erected this like giant Rolling Stone stage. I'll send you pictures and I'll, I'll post something on Twitter for the listeners about the show. But I got to play piano. I was pre-Livestrong, pre-Mav, just there as the guy who beat cancer with playing piano. And I learned about the power of the masses to influence rallying and, and, and right to assemble. But I also then learned about the power of the one. So can you wrap this up on a tight bond and help everyone understand that advocacy isn't just about one person telling their story, but it's about the communities rallying together and they're interchangeable. hundred percent, because I think that 
first of all, thank you for participating on Celebration on the Hill. I think that that was a very powerful event. But to me, it's really important. When we think about the number of people who are going to be diagnosed with cancer this year, which is a little bit north of 1.8 million Americans, you have to wonder why we're not all rallying in the streets to make a difference in the lives of those people, right? That's a lot of families that are going to be negatively impacted by this disease. And so to me, it's about the power of us all working together, whether it's the American Cancer Society or any other organization. We have to do our best to really focus our work, to make a big difference against a disease that is taking too much from too many. So, you know, getting out there, getting involved, telling your story, whether it's in a small way or a big way, is making a huge difference because we can't continue to have that many Americans face this horrible disease. Pam Traxel, you are consummate and professional and you know your shit better than anyone I've ever met. VP of Alliance Development and Philanthropy at the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network, ACSCAN. I said it the right way, on purpose, get to know it, kids. Thank you so much, Pam. We'll have you back real soon. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.